Everything is expensive these days, you know that. The government is printing trillions of dollars in consumer prices higher than ever. If the government continues its printing and spending, the dollar could continue its freefall and lose its coveted role as the world reserve currency. Let's hope that doesn't happen. But there are a few things you can do right now. American Hartford Gold can show you how to protect your money, your retirement, your hard-earned savings against inflation by helping you diversify a portion of your portfolio into physical gold and silver. Start with a short phone call, and they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or put inside your 401k or IRA. So please call or text them right now. Tell them Bill O'Reilly sent you. Call 877-444-GOLD, 877-444-GOLD, or text GOLD to 65532. Again, that's 877-444-GOLD, or text GOLD to 65532. I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. Welcome to the No Spin News Weekend Edition. All right, joining us now from Charleston, South Carolina, is Dr. Clarissa Owens. She is the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at that very fine school. And I almost sent my son there. We went down. We were very impressed by the College of Charleston. What a good, good school uh, that is. So I have my own theory and based on facts about why African-Americans and Jewish people in New York City are at loggerheads sometimes. But I want to hear your opinion on it first. Why do you think that is? Well, we got to first start. Um, my name is pronounced Sharissa. Just want to let you know, Sharissa Owens. Um, oh, Sharissa. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. Sharissa, that's all right. You're, it's a learning curve. My mistake. Um, but no problem. Uh, but the, the tensions are historic, uh, and it really is rooted in these tropes about each community, which leads us to where we are in this place right now. We have had so many challenges that overlap our identities, and both communities have exceedingly tried to fight for the equity and justice that each community deserves. However, I've always asked the question, who benefits from this tension? Who is the community that gets the most from these two communities fighting against each other, fighting within each other, and not working together to actually move towards a more equitable space for everyone in our communities or even in our cities? Well, the answer to uh, so that, that's the starting uh, part. The answer to that question is nobody benefits, doctor. Nobody benefits from any kind of hatred on either side. But there is a history up here in New York and the Northeast uh, about Jewish people clashing with minorities, not just African-Americans. Remember, this high school all right, is just a minority across the board school. And they, these kids in that high school, I mean, they were pretty vicious. So yeah. it has to do with 
Jewish landowners, apartment owners, okay, from the uh, 19th century on, renting to poor people, immigrants, migrants, and then there was a tension between, to this day, that exists. That's what the central force of it is here. Now, in the South, where you are, it's a different situation. You know, how many Jewish people down there? Well, actually, let me take you back a little bit. I want to challenge that idea that we had uh, Jewish community members who actually owned those buildings. They were actually able to own the buildings because we had rules, we had policies, we had procedures, we had laws that allowed them to do that. Other communities could not. So that's where that tension goes. There is called provisional whiteness. At certain periods in our history, our Jewish community was able to purchase those buildings and in some cases was actually able to just rent to only people of color because they could not go anywhere else. So that is part of the tension. But as it kind of moved on into our modern day and contemporary era, you know, they're starting to really realize how much of their uh, opportunities that they've had throughout history, whereas they were able to purchase land or purchase property or go to college and so on and so forth, how that gave them a leg up over those communities who have historically been excluded. And as a result, there's that tension. There's like, okay, well, you've had opportunities that we haven't had. And then there's also this concept of why are we dividing ourselves when we could come together about the exclusion of our lived experiences? Well, okay. Uh, but you can't, in any civilized society, take the sins of the past, all right, and then apply them to people who have nothing to do with it. And, and we're seeing up here uh, a, vir a virulent anti-Semitism in New York City, which has more Jews than Israel, okay? We're seeing really a dangerous anti-Semitism grow. Now, I'm not disputing what you say. I think you're right. A lot of the resentment is passed down from generation to generation. We didn't have the opportunities the white people have. It's white privilege, all right? So now we're going to lash out against the white people or the Jews. That gets us nowhere, and it's fallacious thinking. Or am I wrong? No, you're right. It doesn't get us anywhere. But when we are not teaching our people, our community, our students about how they are part of that community, for example, the Jewish community right now is grappling with the fact that they are very much as diverse as the United States themselves with Jewish people of color coming from so many different parts of the world. And that is a part of the education as well as the professional development and even needs to be present in leadership so that we do not continue the tension. This okay. is but just that's as much true. a part of education as it is for us to practice. That's true that you can't generalize about people of color or Jewish people because they're all, you know, as you said, there's diversity among the groups. But you can say with certainty that the anti-Semitism here in New York, and I think around the country as well, being driven by the progressive left, that is an absolute fact, okay? And contains many minority members. They have signed on in Columbia, in Cornell, at MIT, at Harvard, at NYU, in hating Israel. They have signed on to that. That's coming from the progressive movement. I'll give you the last word. Well, I would say this, it's not so much as it is a 
certified fact as much as it is a lack of knowledge. There's ignorance, which feeds the tropes that the Jewish community has all this power. There is this, this construct of powerlessness among the Jewish community, as well as powerfulness. And that is where the, the crux of this tension is. We need to go back to understanding why is this even a part of the narrative? And how is it fueling the stereotypes, the, the as you have mentioned before, the, the anti-Semitism from any community, but particularly in this case, the communities of color? Because there are communities, there are people of color who are also Jewish, and they are feeling they have to divide themselves. That is not going to be any benefit to any human being, but more specifically to any community. So we really need okay. to go back and start looking at how we need to re-educate ourselves. All right, doctor, that's your job, and I'm sure you do it well, and we really appreciate you uh, coming on the program tonight. Merry Christmas to you. All right, thank you. Merry Christmas to you. You're listening to the No Spin News Weekend Edition. Born from the tragedy of 9-11, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation has been delivering on its promise to do good and never forget the sacrifices of America's greatest heroes. Heroes who put their lives on the line to protect our country and our communities. Heroes like Bristol, Connecticut Police Sergeant Dustin DeMonte. After responding to a domestic violence incident, he sustained fatal gunshot wounds. He left behind his expectant wife and two children. Thanks to the generosity of people like you, Tunnel to Towers paid the mortgage on the DeMonte family home, lifting a financial burden. As his loved ones mourned the decorated officer's loss, they welcomed a miracle, the child he would never get to meet. So many families need your help. Please help America's heroes and their young families. Join Tunnel to Towers on its mission to do good in their honor. 95 cents out of every dollar you donate goes to their programs. Donate $11 a month to Tunnel to Towers at T2T.org. That's T, the number two, T.org. The media has systematically lied to you. The Hunter Biden laptop story, the origin of COVID-19, the Trump-Russia collusion hoax, or how your money's being spent in Ukraine. Enough already with the lies. No more lies, hard truths only. That's what the Truth Podcast is all about. It's not standard conservative talking points. If you want that, go somewhere else. But if you want the hard truth, delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually. You're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe, download now the truth. Joining us now, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is journalist Isaac Saul. He is the founder of Tangle News. So I get lots of mail saying, where do I go, you know, outside of my own operation? And I go to the Wall Street Journal. But we have recently taken on Tangle Semaphore, we looking at them, all right? These are independent agencies like mine, and they deliver good information, and Mr. Saul is the head of that. So I read somewhere where you're going to Transylvania University in Kentucky, and that's a real college. I actually know it, and I can't believe you would enroll there because then you'd have to wear a black cape and all that. But anyway, you're going there to discuss why the profession of journalism has sunk so low in the court of public opinion, correct? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you look at any of the recent polling we have about how people feel about the media, you'll see pretty unbelievably bad numbers. I think a recent Gallup poll showed about 16% of Americans said they had a great deal of trust in television news, and the number's even lower for newspapers now 
pretty much the only thing that polls worse than the media these days is Congress, uh, which is loathed by pretty much everybody currently. So it is not a good time to be a reporter, at least in the sense that it's, you know, we're, it's really hard to earn people's trust. And I think uh, a lot of that is the media's own fault. I think we've done it to ourselves in a lot of ways, and it doesn't surprise me at all that that's the current state of things. Well, how did it happen, though? I mean, what do you what do you think? There was a time when I was in grad school at Boston U getting a broadcast journalism master's degree, which the media was trusted. They were involved with Watergate at that point. They had uh, aggressively covered the Vietnam War, um, and they were, you know, uh, credible. That's the word. Cronkite, Chancellor, all those people. So what happened? Yeah. So I, I talk about three main issues, which is transparency, uh, hiring, and a general balance that we see in the media. So in terms of transparency, you know, the biggest issue for me is that most news organizations are not transparent about how the mistakes they make happen. So when the New York Times gets a story wrong, like the bombing of a hospital in Gaza, they might issue a correction, but we're not totally clear on how that mistake actually happened, why it happened, which leaves a lot of room for suspicion. We saw this, you know, during the Trump era, a lot of mistakes tended to go the wrong way, at least against Trump. So if you were somebody reading a lot of mainstream media, anytime you saw a major error, it was typically the kind of error that made Trump look worse than what the actual correction ended up looking like. And we didn't often get explanations about that. Uh, so that's one. Two is hiring, which is just that, you know, most news organizations are dominated by people with moderate center or left of center politics. There are very few conservatives or Republicans who are working in the industry. That's not some conspiracy theory. There's polls of journalists and media outfits all across the country all the time, and they always show the same results, which is that a vast majority of people who work in the profession of journalism are people with center or left of center politics. And there are very few people on the right side of the political spectrum, with, which impacts the, the coverage that you see. And, and that brings me to balance, which is just, you know, if you read the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal covering the exact same event, you'll see them cover it in drastically different ways, which is a problem for both media outlets. Their, their coverage with, you know, presumably some of the best reporters in the world should be a lot more similar, but it's not. And that is just a reflection of the fact that a lot of media organizations are using their reporting to sort of espouse a worldview rather yeah, than tell honestly what's happening. How badly, yeah, did, yeah, exactly. uh, how badly did the voting machine fiasco hurt Fox News? I think it hurt them a lot. I mean, that that's actually, it's funny you mentioned that because that's one of the examples I use in my talk, which is that, you know, for, for Fox News, they were in a position where they were feeding their viewers what they wanted to hear, which is a really dangerous place to be as a news organization. You know, I know your politics, Bill, and I'm listening to you at the top tell your audience that, hey, there's some evidence that Biden needs to be investigated, but there isn't smoking gun evidence that he should be impeached. And I think that's the right thing to tell your viewers. But a lot of conservative columnists are telling their audience that the evidence is smoking gun and Biden should be impeached. And that's the wrong thing to tell your audience because it's not there. It's just trying to tell them what they want to hear to make sure that they like you and keep them happy. And Fox well, News trying to everybody's tell doing audience now. what they wanted to hear. Yeah, yeah I think that, that's what they're all doing now, because that's what it comes down to money. 
They can make money preaching to the choir. And if you look, I'll just give you a really good example. And you may run into this as a young journalist. So when the election uh, happened, uh, 2000, um, 2000, um, 2020, <laughs> losing track of it. When it happened, about 10 days, two weeks after, I told my audience that there wasn't enough evidence to present to the federal judges because I was watching Supreme Court Justice Alito, who had sway over Pennsylvania. And I was watching what was going to be submitted to Alito, who was sympathetic to this. He was sympathetic that there might have been fraud in Pennsylvania. All right. Well, the Trump people didn't submit anything to him at all. And I said, you know what? At this point, you got to just go with what the election returns are because you don't have any hard evidence. Um, you know, individuals running around saying that's one thing, but you got to present it to the court of law. I must have lost a thousand premium members to BillOReilly.com by saying that. All right. And we're an independent, as you are, at Tangle, we're independent here. We, we uh, depend on our viewers and listeners on the radio to support us and our sponsors. When you lose a thousand in two days, but I had to do it because that's me. If I had been in that chair at Fox News at eight o'clock with the O'Reilly Factor, none of that would have happened. None of it would have happened. Because I would have come out, boom, I would have put Britt Hume on because he was of like mind and I would have just wiped it out. But I'm not there anymore. So Fox News, I don't know if it's ever going to recover uh, its, its trust image among just regular folks. The, the staunch conservatives, that's where they go still, but not to the numbers that they did. All right, last question for you. As an independent kind of guy, and the website is readtangle.com, very easy, readtangle.com. Do you believe that Americans really want to know the truth, Isaac? Or are they just comfortable in their ideological slot? They just want to hear what they believe. What do you believe? I'll tell you what, when I started this, I did not believe that Americans wanted to always hear the truth, even when it was hard for them. My, my instinct was that it would be really hard to build a media company like this that shared views from across the political spectrum. But as I've gone on building Tangle out, I, I'm starting to see that there are a ton of Americans who want that because even if people disagree with the other side of their own political positions, they want to understand them. And more than that, I think a lot of Americans are just exhausted. They're tired of the really nonstop stream of extremism on both sides of the media and both sides of the political spectrum. And they're interested in more nuance. They're interested in a better understanding of their neighbors. And I, I personally do feel like we have hit rock bottom in terms of how much people want to be in their own bubbles. So on that note, I am definitely optimistic and I've seen it firsthand. I mean, we're a young media organization, but We've got 80,000 people on our mailing list. We've got a podcast, a YouTube channel. We have a huge audience that comes in every month to view our content, hundreds of thousands of people. And that to me is a signal that we're doing something. There's a really big appetite for All in right. the country right now. Well, keep it up. Retangle.com. Thank you, Isaac. Really appreciate it. This is the No Spin News Weekend Edition.
Okay, so two-hour debate. And I'll be on uh, News Nation after to lend some wisdom, I hope. It's late. I'm going to have to take a nap. <laughs> but I'll be on, and uh, so will Sean Spicer. He is a News Nation political uh, contributor. Also, the first TV lead-in to my program, The No Spin News. Spicer is really busy, comes to us now, from the University of Alabama. So anything well, new down there and anything going on uh, we should know about? I think there's a lot of excitement tonight for the reason that you laid out. There's a lot of people that want to see uh, DeSantis and Haley go at it. If either of them can move the needle. And then what's the case that Ramaswamy and Christie, you know, make uh, Christie, as you point out, polling very low nationally, but he's making the case that he's only competing in New Hampshire and that he thinks he's going to win there or do really well there and get slingshot forward. I, I, I don't think that's going to happen, but that's his case. Equally concerning is Ramaswamy trying to figure out what, you know, aside from the fact that he has a boatload of cash, why he's still on stage. But, you know, it'll be interesting because tonight is going to be the last time, probably before the Iowa caucuses, that we see these four on stage together. And this is their last chance because it's a national debate. It's here in Alabama. But the only people that really matter are about the 200,000 caucus goers in Iowa. Because if you can't make it out of Iowa, your campaign's over. Yeah. And look, I don't do I don't object to the debate. I just want to hear more from the two viable candidates then and I, I don't know if I'm being unreasonable or not. I, if I were uh, the Republican chief, I would have just said, we're only doing two because the polling numbers don't warrant the other two. Now, when you uh, are analyzing a debate like this, there's not a real big difference in between DeSantis and Haley. Uh, they're conservatives, both of them. Uh, Haley a little bit more moderate, I think, than DeSantis. I think you would agree with that. But do you have a question or two that you would throw at either or? Yeah, so first of all, I would argue that part of this is style, right? We've seen most Republicans generally are about 85% in agreement on most domestic and foreign policy issues. But I think we saw in President Trump a willingness to take on uh, the bureaucratic state to the, and, and fight for policies that previous administrations hadn't. So that's different. So the style does matter for these folks. I think foreign policy matters, how you're going to take on China, what you're going to do about our national security in terms of building up the military. The last debate, I thought the most insightful question that was asked was from Hugh Hewitt when he talked about the size of, of a future Navy. Why? Because it really got you to understand their strategic thinking. It wasn't about a number, saying 300 or 350. It was the rationale that went behind how they got to their number. And I heard, interestingly, Chris Christie and DeSantis really make an interesting case about how they would build the Navy specifically as a cudgel against an increasingly provocative uh, China in the South China Sea, especially as it relates to Taiwan. So for me, part of this is to understand their thinking and their rationale as much as it is their position. Okay. Do you know these people, Haley and uh, DeSantis, personally? I know every one of them. Yep. Every one of them. So give me a personality profile of Christie first. Well, I think Christie is is sort of, without sounding insulting, he's New Jersey to the core. He sort of has a forget about it attitude, go right at the jugular. Uh, he's a you know sort of a brawler. Uh, you see that in how he attacks Donald Trump. I think Nikki Haley uh, is much more of the, to your point, she's more of a statesman type of person, which is why she was a good fit at, at the UN. 
Uh, DeSantis comes across the way that you think he was. He's he's an executive, but he's not the touchy-feely kind of politician that we're normally used to seeing run for president. And then Ramaswamy is, you know, he's just a flamethrower. He's a successful businessman that doesn't really care about using all the right words, and you see it on the debate stage. But what you see with him privately or publicly is pretty much what you see publicly, too. Okay. So Haley uh, and Chrissy are not big fans of mine. And I think that my temper, my analysis of them, all right, um, and that's wrong on my part. I, sh- I shouldn't care what they think of me. Christy, I don't like at all because of the beach thing. Remember the COVID and then he's lounging yep. on the beach by himself? That disqualified him for everything for me, just as the French laundry disqualified the California governor. He went, he said, nobody can come out of the house because of COVID, but I'm going to the big expensive restaurant. Chrissy did the same thing. I'm going to the beach. You can't go. Gone. All right. Can't come back from that. Nikki Haley, I've met her a few times. I I don't think she's a woman of the people. I I just don't get that. I don't see it. But but maybe I'm wrong there. Look, I like to... I've been in this game since I did my first campaign 30 years ago. I've seen a lot of politicians come and go. And I think what the unique thing was about Trump is that he, we didn't know what to make of him. And he came in and he shook up the state. I sat there in the White House with him for about seven months. And he was willing to take on the status quo. So many times we're told we can't do X, right? This is in law. This is how it's always been. And Trump came in and said, I don't care. And for the first time in my life, I saw a politician that was willing to take on the establishment, shake things up to get real change. Too often we hear excuses. I think the closest we're going to get to that is a guy like DeSantis, who has been willing to take on the establishment, fight against institutions like Disney, take on uh, the bureaucracy when it came to coming out of COVID and the educational bureaucracy, shake up the, the, the higher education system in Florida. So if you like Trump, I would go downscale to DeSantis and then keep going. But I, I, I don't disagree. I think Nikki Haley comes across much more uh, in the mold of the establishment Republican. Yeah, I, I, but maybe I'm wrong about her. Final question for you. DeSantis's problem is he doesn't connect with the folks, as I call them. He, yep. He's too remote. He's too re- emotionally remote. Trump isn't. Trump's got the folks... The MAGA people, they don't care what Trump does. They don't care what he says. They're with him. And he'll always be with him because he has forged that connection, whatever it may be. But tactically, if I were Trump, I would consider Nikki Haley as my vice president. What do you think? So interesting. I, I will tell you that I think part of the reason what I put my finger on with Trump was that the business that he's in, construction, retail, uh, restaurants, you, you interact with, with everyday workers, with blue collar workers. So Trump has always had a, a, an affinity and a connection to American workers that I think most politicians lack. The thing that's interesting on my podcast today, I had one of DeSantis's top aides and I said to him, with all of the accomplishments that DeSantis has as governor, why isn't he connected? Kind of the, what you're getting at. And I think part of it is, is that, that that's that lack of connection to people. You got all the accomplishments on the paper that would add up to somebody doing really well. And yet it's not there because of what you've put your finger on. I, I think that's, that's the biggest thing that I take away from right now where things is that Trump has a connection with people because of the background that he's been in yeah. 
that he and, understands and his, the, 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 his personality is, is much right. more open. Nikki Haley, VP, yes or no? So I'm sorry. The re, here's what I've always said with Trump being the VP is a concentric circle. You have to want it. They ha- he has to want you. And I think Nikki Haley didn't want to stick around as UN ambassador. Why would she want to, as I say, after seeing the Mike Pence movie, who was a loyal vice president for four years, take that job? I think Nikki Haley doesn't want the job. I don't think Trump would pick her. I still think my number one pick right now is Sarah, Suck- Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She knows the job. She knows what Trump's looking for, and he knows her. That's my number one pick right now. All there. right. And that's not a good that's – a, that's a good choice. Okay, once again, Sean Spicer leads into the no spin news on the first. The, way the warm up act. Uh, yeah, they told Spicer he's got to be the warm up act for me, but that they were just kidding. I mean, they, you're the you're the star at seven. But the way this works, because uh, we're not corporate media here, is that we hire distributors, and the first TV distributes us. Along with many others in America, you know, direct TV, all of that kind of stuff. So Spicer's got a program seven to eight. We come on at eight um, and then you get us other places on the radio as well. So thanks for uh, being my warm up guy, Spicer. But I think you're a star in your own right. And uh, I hope we can talk again soon. We'll see you tonight on News Nation. You bet, sir. See you then. Okay. Now I'll be doing, as I mentioned, uh, commentary after the debate. Here's a gem from the No Spin News Vault. Now, you may remember the name Michelle Bachman, okay? She, a former congressman from uh, Minnesota, all right, served from 07 to 2015. She was on the O'Reilly Factor often. Um, And now she is the dean of the Robertson School of Government at Regent University in Minnesota. And I, I want to check in with her because I have Michelle, I haven't talked to you in so long. Uh, how are you? And uh, nice to see you. Well, thank you, Bill. It is great to see you again, too. I've enjoyed all the interactions that we've had together over the years, and I'm really enjoying being dean. It's an opportunity to be able to give back into the next generation to teach them about government how our government works, but also really what is the essence of America? What does our constitution say? What does our declaration of independence say? What rights are guaranteed to us in the Bill of Rights? So it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to pour into the next generation because as you and your viewers know, there are a lot of people in this current generation who have no clue essential aspects of American history, much less learning about our founding. So it's it's tremendously rewarding to be able to teach the next generation. Yeah, you got, we got to straighten these urchins out. Now, you have a particular <laughs> interest in uh, foreign, uh, let's make everybody the same, the Obama uh, philosophy of, you know, one world globalism, correct? Do you still yeah. have that interest? I do, Bill. I used to sit on the Intelligence Committee in the United States Congress. We dealt with the classified secrets of America, particularly with the issue of terrorism. Now it's on the high horizon. If people remember the results of the midterms and the midterm week, that was actually a big globalism week. That was the week that the Climate Change Conference met at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And it was really quite tremendous. For 30 years, 
All of these countries have been on the United States for us to make reparations payments to them. In other words, a grand global redistribution of wealth. Well, they finally got it through this year. So now the Biden administration is on board with the viewers that are watching you today. Now our tax money will go and be thrown all over the world in reparations payments because we've been a successful nation. That's one thing that happened. But the other thing that happened that's very concerning is with the B20 and the G20 nations, the 20 largest nations with the largest GDP in the world, they made a decision that now all countries of the world will be gathering in Geneva, Switzerland this year and we're supposed to be giving up our national sovereign decision-making over healthcare decisions, like during a pandemic, to the World Health Organization, which is really under the thumb of communist China. This is incredibly important, Bill, because if our pandemic decisions have to come at the behest of the World Health Organization, it, we have no one to appeal to. We can't appeal to a congressman. We can't appeal to a senator. Yeah, we I don't can't think appeal that's going to happen. Biden. Because in order for that to happen, Congress would have to affirm that treaty. And the way it is now with Republicans controlling the House, they're never in a million years going to do it. But the first thing that you mentioned is interesting. So what they decided to do in Sharm el-Sheikh was to give an enormous amount of money from the developed nations to the undeveloped nations to combat global warming, which of course I know that um, Mali is, is gonna immediately start to do that. <laughs> you know, it's all gonna be stolen. Everybody knows it is. And, and why, I don't even know why. But anyway, I appreciate you bringing both of those things to our attention. The other thing my staff told me, and I'm glad you're on today, is that you are following this Meghan and Harry thing. So net. <laughs> Netflix paid these to $100 million. That's the rumor. I don't know if it's true. And they've got this documentary that's doing very well. A lot of people are watching. I couldn't care less about Meghan and Harry, okay? To me, uh, they sound like people living down the street whose dog barks too loud. That's Meghan and Harry. Shut that dog up. Now, you find something interesting about this. What is it? Well, I think the interesting thing is, is they're very emblematic of the current thinking in America right now, which is an entitlement mentality, that the world should be the way I want it to be, that everybody should have to act the way that I want them to act. It is an unbelievable way of thinking. When you were young, when I was young, we were expected to accommodate ourselves a little bit to the world. We were we had a standard of, of behavior that we had to come to. These people think they can snap their finger and the royal family is supposed to do their bidding or people around them are supposed to do their bidding. The weird thing, Bill, is that this isn't just Harry and Meghan's way of thinking. I don't know if it's generational. I don't know. But this is what we're seeing is that this really is the new ideology that people are, are taking in and living by. And society can't work that way. <laughs> you, it, it can't work that way when everybody wants to be the boss. But unfortunately, it really is emblematic of that current, I don't want to say generation because the whole generation isn't like that, but it's becoming way too common. And I think that's what was so interesting about this documentary because it gave, you, gave away the thinking of people who actually think that way, 
who yeah. are entitled, who think that the, you know, the universe open, owes them a living. My parents always told me, nobody owes you a living. Well, there's a whole new group of people who actually think they are owed a living. And Harry and Meghan seem to be among them. Yeah, that's very true. I talked about it last night with the second tribe of uh, people who say, look, I don't want to compete or I can't compete in our society, in our capitalistic society, so give me stuff. But there's an outside chance. And again, I have no interest in these two. I don't care about the royal family. <laughs> I'm Irish. They seized my ancestors' farm, threw them off, London did. Um, uh, you know, we booted them out of here in a Revolutionary War at great sacrifice. I'm glad they're gone. Um, but there is an outside chance that Meghan and Harry basically sat down and said, look, we're never going to be king and queen. That's not happening here. So our lives are going to be running around doing little ceremonial stuff, raising money for charity, and it's boring and we don't want to do it. So let's go to America and make a pile of dough. Okay, and the easiest way to do that is to badmouth the royal family and then everybody will come and give us money to go on Netflix and we'll badmouth everybody and we'll be fabulously wealthy, which they already were. But now they're in Santa Barbara, wherever, wherever they are. And they're running around. They may be just conning everybody, Michelle. You know, that could well, be they, happening here. Well, I, I think they are conning everybody. But I think at this point, they're so pathetic. That's that's the thing that is shocking. You would think that the big boys at Netflix would be smarter, that they could no, see through this. No, they just want people to they watch. They don't, they don't, <laughs> but no, I know, but is, it's it the highest so rated Netflix has, thing. It's the highest thing rated, they have. It's rated... It's rated number two today, but the the people that watch it, I mean, they, they're disgusted with this Meghan and Harry. It's got a rating of 12 on Rotten Tomatoes. I mean, like, you can't go lower than that. And so I think they're really one-hit wonders at this point. Maybe. And I think whining isn't going to get them any, any further. And I think... For people who decide that whining is your cottage industry, you got a pretty short shelf life. It's not going to last. And I think, again, you're all about common sense. You've always been about common sense. And I think, especially for this younger generation, there's some tried and true principles and common sense wisdom. Take that. Don't go this route of whining. Don't go the route of thinking you're entitled. It's going to be a dead-end stop every time. Especially if you're not a royal and you're not going to get $100 million, <laughs> You're just going to get scorned. <laughs> hey, Michelle, it's so good to see you. Uh, I'm glad you're doing well at Regent University, uh, trying to straighten the urchins there out. I want you to have a very Merry Christmas. <laughs> and let's talk again soon, okay. okay? We'll do it, Bill. Thanks again. Merry okay. Christmas. Thank you for listening to the No Spin News Weekend Edition. To watch the full episodes of the No Spin News, visit BillOReilly.com and sign up to become a premium or concierge member. That's BillOReilly.com. Sign